This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So this message is, uh, it has sort of a, 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 t- a title that I'm not exactly sure how it will translate to you. Uh, it's a pretty good title, uh, but it's called the Proclivity Movement. And a proclivity is actually a negative term for the most part, it's, and I, I will define it. And I'm going to use it as a negative term in this, uh, which means there's a movement that I'm going to say is a very, very common one, even in the church of Jesus Christ, but culturally it's a phenomenon that we have witnessed, and a lot of the gender identity issues flow directly out of this, and it's something that I believe we need to address with some key truths internally. So this isn't some social uh, cause message where I'm trying to take on some agenda of the culture. What I want us to do first and foremost is to live as believers within the church. I want us to function strongly so that we can be a witness of the truth and a life that works and a life that can truly showcase triumph because we have the truth. And that's why this is important. So proclivity, a tendency to choose or do something regularly, an inclination or predisposition toward a particular thing. So a proclivity, it is a tendency towards doing that one thing that you know you shouldn't. Yeah, you know, some people have a proclivity towards lying. Some people have a proclivity, proclivity towards alcohol. And some people have a proclivity towards uh, arrogance and, you know, looking down and always being sort of snobbish in the way that they carry themselves. And I could name something and you could identify with it. And other things you could look at and go, that is ridiculous that people struggle with that. Have you ever had that? That's the way I was with, and I I still can be, with with alcohol. I have no proclivity towards alcohol. None whatsoever. I I, I think the smell is not bad, right? But the taste is disgusting to me. I have no desire for it. And so I can look at someone else that struggles with it and go, pfft. What's their problem? It's pretty easy to say no to that. However, I do have proclivities. I'm not going to you know, have some big expose on the proclivities that Eric does have, but it is interesting because every single one of us is built of the same clayish substance. And we all have what's known as a flesh. And that flesh has different tendencies in each one of us. It's like there are certain keys that can be played in our life that can cause us to move in the wrong direction in our life very quickly. And as a result, we need to recognize that all of us sort of have been dealt the same hand. It's just different. In other words, we all have like five cards in our hand. It's just they're different cards. But if any of those are sensitized and any of those are given any type of leeway in our life, they will overcome our senses and dominate our existence. And so we all are in need of something. It's known as Jesus Christ. We all need a Savior. And so what I'm describing as a proclivity in our culture has become a dominating factor, where it's become an identity. Very few people identify as a liar. Like, the way that they want to identify culturally is as a liar. And so that would be a very odd thing, and all of us would look around like, that's strange. However, that's just as strange as it has become with some of the gender politics that have taken place where someone wants to take a proclivity that they have and marshal it as a new identity. This is who I am. And that is a very odd thing in cultural landscape, even throughout history. It is a strange thing to do, but that's what we've seen today. I'm calling it the proclivity movement. So the proclivity movement, identifying with our proclivity or our vulnerability, our certain vice that we can more easily go uh, fall uh, uh, in, in the trap of, instead of with Christ's victory. So we're identifying with the wrong thing. 
In other words, sure, you may have a proclivity that does exist in your life, but it doesn't need to be your identity. You see, as believers, we're meant to have an identity firmly established in Jesus Christ, though we still have a flesh. We do not give that flesh the room to maneuver to define our existence. We actually allow Jesus to define our existence. So I'm going to give twos as we go through this, which is a common thing for me to do. Over here on this side of the stage is usually firsts, and then over here is seconds. We are born a natural birth, and we are controlled by something known as sin. We are under a just condemnation because of it. We are controlled by an old man. In Over here, it's called being in Adam. We're all the descendant of Adam. We're a descendant of Adam's failure. We're a descendant of Adam's sin, and we're also a descendant of Adam's ultimate consequence. His destiny is shared with us. However, by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, we shift kingdoms. We move from being in Adam to being in Christ. And therefore, just as we shared in Adam's sin, now we share in Christ's victory. Just as we shared in, in Adam's destiny, we now share in Christ's destiny. And so it's a shifting from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son which is the basis of Christianity. And so, however, many of us, even though we understand that in a, in a basic uh, infrastructural way, we have a tendency to live, as I'm going to say, with a mirror of the sinner instead of the window of the saved. In other words, where you look at your life by staring at the mirror instead of through the glass up at Christ to see your salvation— you look back and you see yourself and you evaluate your Christianity based on you, based on your performance, based on your tendencies, which is a very souring way to live uh, out your life because I don't know if you've looked in the mirror and been able to see the darkness of your soul, but it's not very attractive, right? There is something that you're supposed to turn your gaze toward that actually sets you free, and that is that mirror, that, that glass that looks straight up towards the brightness of his glory, the goodness of his countenance, the beauty of his perfection. He has done it. He has done the work. Whereas you look at you and you're like, I haven't done the work. I haven't done enough to warrant his love and his, his kindnesses towards me. And so that's why I'm just calling it at the very beginning, the mirror of that self-reflection as opposed to that window of seeing who he is and what he has done. When we look into the mirror, we have a tendency to evaluate our Christianity based on what we have done or what we haven't done. And I'm not saying that what you have done or what you haven't done has no basis or value in your life. It's just that it's supposed to flow out of seeing what he has done and what he is still desirous to do, how he views you, as opposed to looking in the mirror and seeing something that is actually rather gnarled and twisted. You see, even though we've been set free, we are a work in process. And even though we are set free from our sin, we still have the propensity to be a sinner. We have the propensity or the proclivity towards sin as long as we are in these mortal bodies. However, we have a remedy to escape that proclivity dominating our life, and that is by living from our identity being found in Christ Jesus having that glass mirror that looks out and sees his ability, sees his glory, sees his perfection, sees his redemptive power, sees his grace. When we stare at our own ability, it brings us down and it actually is going to empower our natural proclivities to rule in our life instead of the other way around. Romans 13, 14 but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So over here, you recognize that there's an old life. It's a first. It's a first condition. Then there is the second born man. He's the twice born. He's the one that is born again. He is the second man according to the New Testament. And this is being in Adam. This is being in Christ. And so what we see is we're supposed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, we're supposed to be in Jesus, and make no provision for this other side of the ledger, which is for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So I know this is going to be a very obvious summary statement of that, but 
I want you to see it. You and I have a flesh. And this flesh lusts. Okay, so there are lusts of the flesh. Now, these lusts of the flesh are very common to man. Every single human on earth has a proclivity towards them. This is not some new novel idea that I'm bringing up that it's like there's one of us in here. One of you in here has this. All of us in here have this. And so outside of Christ, we do our best to try and manufacture a human solution to these things. We try and hide them. We cloak them. We try and make the best version of them. We try and discipline our life to not give way to them. And so as a result, we have this, but one of the things I want you to recognize is even though we are in Christ, it does not negate the fact, it's like being in a plane, it does not negate the fact that gravity exists. Gravity still exists though you are in a higher law of aerodynamics. And if you step outside of that plane, you are vulnerable to gravity. And gravity will pull you down, even if you're at 50,000 feet in the air. Gravity still is very operative. However, when you submit and you abide in the plane, gravity has no power over you. I just described the secret of Christianity right there. It is to abide in the plane, to remain in Christ Jesus, to identify with that plane, as opposed to your proclivity to fall under the power of gravity. Because if you're in the plane, even though you could fall under the power of gravity, that does not define you. And so you and I have a flesh, and this flesh lusts. It is a very active uh, agent the moment you awaken it. In other words, you feed the lust, throw it a breadcrumb, and it grows three sizes in seconds. In other words, it's waiting. It's like the, the plane that is... Uh, you know, flying, and if you, you punch a hole in it, it's like this pressurized chamber, <laughs> start sucking things out. Yeah, that's sort of like the flesh. It's like, don't punch a hole in the pressurized chamber of abiding in Christ. It's just you don't want to mess with that because the flesh is a very active agent and it lusts, it is desiring to take for itself, which is why you have to understand that so you do not feed it. So here's another scripture that's going to play off of that one. Ephesians 4.22, put off concerning your former conduct to the old man. So the other scripture said, put on Christ. This one says, put off. So it's saying the same thing. We're supposed to put off this old life and put on Christ. But what do we know about this old life? Put off concerning your former conduct to the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. I think that's an interesting uh, descriptor of lusts. They're deceitful. These, this craving dimension of your existence that longs to be satisfied is also deceitful. In other words, you can't trust it. Have you ever had a conversation with your lusts and tried to reason with them? How, you know, it's because your lust will, is very cutting. And so your lust, you know, probably speaks with a grovelly, like monster like voice, right? However, it puts on its gentlemanly voice when it talks with you. It's like, I think it's very reasonable that you give a little time to this, that you have a little allowance for this in your life. Very gentlemanly, probably even like a British accent, even though it's all fake. He's a great actor. He's deceitful. And he is attempting to con you into giving him a breadcrumb. He's trying to con you into giving space in your life that he has no legal right to when you're a believer. And so, as a result, this is not something to toy around with, to mess around with. So, and these lusts are deceitful. So let's look at some synonyms for deceitful. They con, they lie, they mislead, they deceive, they derange if they are given a microphone. So your lusts are over here, and you've you know, nullified them, you've, you've not given them any power in your life, you're abiding in Christ, and it's like gravity trying to woo you when you're flying in a plane. It's like, hey, could we just talk? Uh, hey, could, could we just think about what it would be like if you just left the plane just for a few minutes? And you could enjoy the, the, the free fall of gravity afresh. I mean, you haven't had that privilege for a long time. Technically, we don't want that privilege, do we? However, when you give your lusts a microphone and you start to reason with them and think alongside with them, they will always mislead you, always. They will always cover up truth. They will cloak the scriptures. They don't want you to see it. They will distort them. They will take out what they want, mine what they want, to try and con you into 
moving in this direction in your behavior as opposed to finding your security, your strength in Christ. So the unusual question. So Leslie and I were in a conversation uh, earlier this last year, and we were. It was a business contract uh, situation, and it was a great conversation. The person seemed like they could be very qualified for what we were dealing with, and uh, at the very end of the conversation, they asked, "Does it matter that I'm gay?" Now I brought this up. It was sometime last year, and I'm bringing it up again because it. I think it actually is important culturally. And, you know, because you can put yourself in my position. I run a Christian organization, and I'm going to be possibly working with someone to do something. They're not like a staff member. They don't really have influence over what we're doing, but it's a contractual uh, worker. And they know that we're Christians, so that's what they bring up. I know you're a Christian organization, and, you know, hey, look, I'm a Christian too. Does it matter that I'm gay? And uh, it's such a strange question that is a new fangled question for our hour and our times. Now, I'm not saying that uh, homosexuality didn't exist in, in times past, so it did. However, the identification that is very quick, the political correctness of this identification with the proclivity is actually so strong these days that this becomes this issue that drives conversation, that drives circumstances that never would have before. And so it puts someone like me in this very unique position. Does it matter that you're gay? Uh, boy, this is a, an interesting one. So listen to this. This is what was stated, and I want you to just sort of put yourself in my position and process through this with me. This is what they say. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I love Jesus Christ. I know that homosexuality is wrong, so I do not practice it. I'm happily married. I have two beautiful kids. I will not get a divorce. I'm not exercising, engaging in, fostering, or in any way cultivating my attraction to girls. But I want you to know, Eric and Leslie, I'm gay. Does that matter to you? Uh, why do Christians have such a hard time with this? Like, I'm not the only one that has, is a little disturbed over this. It's like something is off, but I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Because what you have is someone who's basically saying, look, I don't participate in any of that. However, I identify with it. In other words, they're identifying with their proclivity, not with the triumph of Christ. I mean, if I struggled with alcohol, or if I, studied with, if I struggled with thievery, or I struggled with lying, it would be a strange thing to say, hey, does it matter if I'm a thief? Uh, wait a minute, wait, you're a thief? Uh, it was like, so I'm about to contract with you to work with me, but you're a thief? Uh, hey, does it matter that I'm a liar? Whoa, what, you're a liar? Uh, so it sort of does matter if you're a liar. Is this like, are you an active like liar that you lie all the time? No, no, I never lie, but I'm a liar. What? Wait, wait a minute here. You, you never lie, but you're a liar. Okay, well, how do I process this? And this is, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a crash course in the proclivity movement, where someone's proclivity becomes their identity. And this is who they are, even though I don't participate in any of this, I don't do any of this, it's my identity. So, Let's just evaluate this. She believes the Bible. She loves Jesus Christ and looks to him as her savior. She is an active contributor in her local church. She loves her husband. She cares for her children. She is a generous, loving, kind-hearted woman. She is, not just attract she is just not attracted to men and happens to find women more attractive. Whew, this is a challenging issue. I'm scratching my head, you know, or scratching my soul. It's like, what? How am I supposed to process this? This is just, it's odd, is what I would say. And that's because she has elevated a propensity or a behavioral proclivity in her life to the point where it defines her. She's not a Christian, she's gay. Who, and she just happens to be also a Christian. And so her gayness has a tendency to drive her identity as opposed to her belief in Jesus. And when that happens, it throws off the whole system. My response, I, I'm intrigued by your bluntness. In fact, your bluntness is so blunt that it leaves me near speechless, which was my actual response. I was processing, trying to get a grip on what I was listening to. It's like, how do I process through this? 
What if it had been a different question? Eric, does it matter that I'm a liar? It's the same actual issue. Now listen to this. I'm going to put different uh, things in here so you could evaluate it. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I love Jesus Christ. I love the truth. I know that lying is wrong, so I do not practice it. I purposely seek to never speak anything that is not fully true. And if I do, I always seek to correct all falsehood. I'm not exercising, engaging in, fostering, or in any way cultivating my propensity to lie. But I want you to know, Eric and Leslie, I'm a liar. Does that matter to you? And I would probably be in the same situation I was with this, where I'm like, ah, uh, okay, wait a minute here. How do I wrap my brain around this? You're not functionally participating in something, but the weird thing is you're identifying with it. It's defining who you are. And as a believer, you're not defined by your proclivity. You're defined by his triumph, by his grace. You're defined by his redemption. You are a child of the Most High God, set free, redeemed, forgiven. Even though you still have a flesh, your flesh does not rule you anymore and it does not define you. So you do not find any of your nomenclature for your life from this side of the ledger. You find it all from this side. And that's why this is such a very unique challenge, mentally, socially. It's like, how do I respond to this? What if it had been, does it matter that I'm selfish? Wouldn't that be an interesting way to finish a job interview? And by the way, I know you guys are Christians and and everything, but before you hire me, I just want to get something out of the table. Does it matter to you that I'm selfish? Uh, you're selfish? Well, I mean, it could matter. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, so I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I love Jesus Christ. I'm a firm believer in selfless living. I know that selfishness is wrong, so I do not practice it. I purposely seek to never participate in any selfish act. And if I do, I always seek to humble myself and repent of the selfishness and make it right. I'm not exercising, engaging in, fostering, or in any way cultivating my propensity towards selfishness, but I want you to know, Eric and Leslie, I'm selfish. Does that matter to you? So what I want you to put your finger on in this is the fact, I want to see if you do this at all. First of all, do you identify with your proclivity? I would say probably it's highly unlikely that this particular group is identifying in your proclivity, right? It's, not, it's more of a social phenomenon that is taking place, but it is creeping into the church. Our church has a tendency probably to see this a little more clearly, but I think it helps us to recognize this is a big, big deal today, where much of the church is struggling with this. Now, here's the other thing that I think is fascinating that this brought up inside of me. If someone said that they were selfish or had a proclivity towards selfishness, but they don't practice it, and they find their, their redemption in Jesus Christ, they believe in Jesus and, and all that, I would be like, well, you know what? That's very normal, right? It's, that's a very normal facet of life, is that we have proclivities, we just don't feed them. And instead, we focus on Christ, and we find his power enabling us. Praise God. So, uh, yes, I, I, I'm glad you're willing to acknowledge that you have these vulnerabilities. That's very, that's very good of you. But it's usually not an identity. Like, I am selfish. That's who I am. Hi, my name is Eric. I'm selfish. That, that isn't the way most of us do it. However, when it comes to gender identity, we have a tendency to have that lead, which is where the proclivity movement comes in, where it's like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm gay. And that becomes your identity instead of Christ. Now, the challenge that that plays with many of us, many in the conservative side of the church would say that being gay is a worse criminal offense of the soul than any other thing that you could have. Like selfishness, that's nothing, but gay, oh, wow, that's, that's very significant. When I would say a proclivity is a proclivity, and we have different gradients of darken, darkness that we attribute to them. You know, if we go back into King Alfred's time, so we're like, what, 895 uh, AD? This is a long time ago, right? Their biggest vice was disloyalty. Loyalty was the crowning jewel of character. So it was called oath-keeping or oath-breaking. To be an oath-breaker was the greatest sin that they knew in that Christian culture. This is a Christian culture. And oath-breaking was the highest degree of sinfulness, right? 
And I would say in every culture we sort of create our gradients instead of recognizing that, okay, sin is sin. It all corrupts. It is deceitful. And it wants to control your life. The enemy is looking for the gap where he can get in. He studies us. And he looks for how he can contort us and distort us and pervert us. And that's why we need to recognize that these are deceitful lusts. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ, and we don't want to participate in this, and we don't want any of this to rule us. However, when we create greater senses of darkness towards certain proclivities, we have a tendency to isolate different sorts of people as if they are worse off than others. And in a sense, we are elevating our own proclivities as if they are less uh, evil. When I would say that's a dangerous maneuver of our soul. You may not struggle with homosexuality, but you need to recognize that what you do struggle with is an equal evil. In other words, it still has the damning effects that separate us from the presence of God. And these are not things we mess with. So let's not elevate ourselves unwittingly by damning someone more critically. And so as a result, the proclivity is a proclivity. And if you are not participating in the proclivity, and you are instead participating in the redemptive work of grace and the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit, this ought not to define you. Your proclivity is not who you are. So a short list of other options. Uh, Eric and Les, I, I know you're a Christian ministry, but does it uh, matter to you that I'm lustful? Well, that would be a, a unique thing to respond to, right? I'm proud. Oh, I'm, I'm critical. Did I mention that? Uh, I'm frustrated. I'm irritable. Uh, I might need to make it known to you that I'm gluttonous. I'm sticky-fingered. I'm unkind. I'm moody. I'm idolatrous. I'm hypocritical. I'm hateful. I'm bitter. I'm unforgiving. Uh, Eric and Leslie, I, I know that you run a Christian ministry. I, I just wanted you to know that I'm a sinner. <laughs> Any of these could easily fall into the territory of all of us in here if we were doing a job interview. Full disclosure, I just want you to know I have a proclivity towards being an idiot sometimes. In other words, that's not usually how we do our job interview, right? First of all, as a believer, we don't identify in our proclivity. That is not who we are anymore. We were sinners, but we are sinners now saved by grace. And ironically, the Bible has a different name for us. We're actually called, brace yourselves, this is a really hard one for modern Christians to get. We're saints. That is like so opposite and so difficult for us to even get out of our mouth. It's like, oh, that is like so awkward to say because I am not a saint. You are a saint in Christ which means you are one of the sanctified ones. You are one that is set apart for his purposes. You are the dwelling place of the Most High God. That is the new fact over your life. And so as a result, instead of allowing the devil to dupe you with his false rhetoric about your life, this is who you are, this defines you. Throw that off. Put off that old man and put on Christ. Stop looking in the mirror at who you are. Now look through the glass pane at who he is. He has done the work. He has rescued you. He has saved you. And it was not based on your perfection. It was based on his. He has done the work for you. It was never based on your work. It was based on his. And that is still true today. You are who you are in Christ, not because of your works, but because of his works. And so as a result, you still rest in that plane knowing that you are extremely vulnerable to the law of gravity. But by grace, you have been saved. A dormant propensity versus a fostered activity. The difference is life and death. So if you have a proclivity and you are fostering it, it's going to lead to a corruption of your life. If you have a proclivity and you deny it, and you don't give it space to maneuver, and you don't feed it, it is just a dormant proclivity, and it has no power over your life. It could have power, but it doesn't have to have power. In Christ, you have authority, you have position to negate this. It is a very loudmouth thing in your life. It is appealing. It is always trying to attract you to feed it breadcrumbs. I get that. But that does not mean it rules you, nor should it identify you. 
You are not known by your proclivities in heaven. You are known by his salvation. You are a child of the Most High God. Genesis 4, 6 through 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Another way of saying that is, but you must master it. Now, most of us have a tough time with the idea of mastering sin, which is why I'll stick this up on the screen. Mastering sin, is it even possible? Sin is a very, very powerful thing. And if any of you have ever tried to mess with it, wow. It is a force uh, that is greater than our own resolve. Our own natural man will be sucked under very quickly by it. I liken us to sheep, not because I'm some brilliant person, the Bible does, but let's say we are sheep and the enemy is a wolf pack. Let's say your own flesh is a wolf pack. Now you desire to master that wolf pack. And I can say, good luck. You see, it's greater than you are. It's greater than your resolve. So you can discipline your life, you can do various things, but you are still going to fall under that wolf pack's power. It's greater than you, which is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the shepherd. And as a result, even though the sheep is weaker than the wolf pack, the shepherd is greater than the wolf pack. Did I say the wolf pack is greater than the sheep? I think I said that wrong. The wolf pack is greater than the sheep. The shepherd is greater than the wolf pack. That sounds a little better than whatever I just said. Don't listen too closely to all those specifics. Mastering sin, is it even possible? The answer is found in the issue of identity. So before I, I called it the mirror of the sinner and then the, the glass pane or the window of the, the, the saved, the chair of the sinner versus the chair of the saved. When you think of like abiding, uh, you think of a barca lounger, it's like you're, you're resting in a chair, right? Uh, and usually you think of the, the dad that comes home from work and has his newspaper. I don't know if it's the best mental picture for what I'm trying to capture. However, if you are going to have a chair or a position that you sat in, and this is where you identified, you don't want to sit in the chair of the sinner. It's like, yeah, I, I'm just a sinner, and burp, scratch, and you accept the defeat in your life. That is the exact opposite direction of the way the gospel leads us. The gospel leads us to the chair of the saved. I am the redeemed. I am forgiven. I am uh, given all that I need for life and godliness. And so even though I may have stumbled, I have a redeemer and he lives. In other words, the chair of the saved is the place you must be as a believer. This is the place of strength. So the question is, where is your identity? This is Adam. This is Christ. So are you still in Adam, identifying with Adam, sharing in Adam's failure, sharing in Adam's consequence? You have been given an out. You have been given a way out of Adam into Christ. So don't keep identifying over here. It's like, yeah, this is just who I am. As opposed to, no, this is who Christ has made me to be. This second share is a position of faith. And this is how Christianity functions. Identity. So this is a very simple definition for it. What makes me who I am? So are you made who you are by your sin? Does that define you? By your proclivity? Is that who you are? Or are you who you are because of Christ? What defines your identity? So identity is also what frames my view of myself, what determines my conclusions about me. So remember when you're over here with the mirror? What's determining your view of yourself? What you see. So if you happen to be good at something, you feel good about yourself. If you happen to fail, you feel miserable about yourself. However, when you look through the glass pane of the Holy Spirit and you see God's opinion of you, what does he say of you? He says he loves you. He has chosen you. He actually wants to be with you. He has redeemed you. He has taken all that the enemy has meant for evil and he's turned it to good because you love him and are called according to his purpose. He gives you a whole new lens to see what you are, to define your identity. It also could mean what determines my conclusions about me. So who are you? If you look in the mirror 
or you listen to Adam or you listen to the flesh, you'll get all sorts of nonsense. Remember the, the, the flesh and that, that lust that you have, that craving for self-exaltation is deceitful. And sometimes it cons you to say, you're fine. Look, that's, that's all bogus, this whole conviction thing. You don't need to worry about that. You're totally fine. You've done a lot of good things too. At the same time, it also will drive you into the dirt with condemnation. In other words, it is deceitful and it's, it's devouring your life. It will corrupt you. Jesus Christ wants you to live out of a different position. Hebrews 10.9 Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. This first life that we have, this old man life, God desires to remove that as the operational center of our life and to establish the second. The first is Adam. The second is Jesus. The first is the flesh. The second is the spirit. The first is law. The second is grace. God desires to establish a new operation, new management of our life. And we gain that new management by faith. It's not by some great work we do. It's by believing that he is able, that he has done it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam, remember this seat, this is Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, that's the second seat, all shall be made alive. So as a result, when you identify with your proclivity, you're actually declaring yourself in Adam. You're contradicting yourself all over the place. It's like, yes, this is who I am. Oh, I'm a believer, but this is who I am. That's the opposite of the gospel direction. The gospel doesn't define you by your sinfulness or your sinful propensities. It defines you by Christ, what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has done. So it's very significant in the church that we put our finger on this and recognize what is taking place. Colossians 2, 9 through 13. For in him, speaking of Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Well, in him is over here. It's the second position. Who is the head of all principality and power? In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. There's an incredible picture of the gospel just right there. Ephesians 4.22, we read this earlier. Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Put that off. Don't continue in that thinking. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So if you were declaring yourself a liar, what is Paul saying in Colossians? Well, do not continue in that. In other words, you do not need to be defined by that. You may have been a liar in the past, but do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. So when you are thinking and reasoning according to Scripture, you do not allow proclivity to define you. You have vulnerabilities, and I'll be the first one to tell you that. I am the first one to tell myself that. I have vulnerabilities that have fed could overwhelm my life and overtake my life very quickly. And it doesn't matter how many decades I've lived in Christ, I still have vulnerabilities, which is why the enemy continues to tempt and try and work through the cracks of our life even though we've been in Christ for a long time. You would think that he would just give up on us if we're in Christ because we are impermeable and we cannot be reached. We are very reachable, which is why we must remain in Christ, which is why we must abide, which is why we must stoke the fires of our soul, the intimacy we share with Christ, so that we could maintain a guardedness, so that we could persevere in this position. 
The enemy is seeking to devour us. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he has not given up on us because he knows that we have dormant proclivities. And as a result, we must be aware of that. They don't define us, but they are very real. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. In other words, I am no longer defined by this. This doesn't define my behavior. Christ defines my behavior. The list of facts. If I am baptized into Christ by faith, then I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I am buried with Christ, Romans 6.4. I am resurrected with Christ, Romans 6.4. I am a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I am seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. That is a marvelous list. And that's just the beginning of a list of what we recognize in Christ. See, when you start to allow the debasing of your thinking to, just because it's politically cool to be gay right now i mean you get all the privileges in this life if you declare yourself gay and guess what you could also be a believer it's like hey i got both it's a very very dangerous game to play because what you're saying is i'm in adam hi does that matter to you that i am allowing my adamness to define me as opposed to christ to define me Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proclivity does not define you. This is sort of a summary point for us. Even though there's a proclivity movement, and it is very common even in the church of Jesus Christ, it may not be tremendously common in this room, however, you will be exposed to this thinking as a believer, and it would really help us to be sound in our understanding of our position in Christ. Proclivity does not define you. Jesus does. We as believers are defined by Jesus Christ. And that isn't politically correct. That's not going to get you any points with culture, and you're not going to be able to advance in your job position because of that. However, it is the ultimate place of identification. Everything that matters is found there. The seed of the sinner versus the seed of the saint. It's all a matter of faith in Christ. So when we have faith in Christ Jesus, we transfer from this seat in Adam, this position in Adam, we put it off and we are seated in Christ Jesus. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Now you guys are familiar with this. This is how the Psalms start. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, he's not hanging out over here nor stands in the path of sinners, he's not over here, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. In other words, he doesn't hang out over here. This isn't where he functions. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You see, if you stay over here, it will decay your soul. It may give you points culturally, and you may have advancements in your career. However, it is going to corrupt your soul to remain with any identification in the Adam zone. You have been set free to identify with Jesus Christ. You wear that as a badge. And yes, that will probably curtail your career in this culture. It'll curtail your, inning, your earning potentials at times. It could create hazards for your life. Welcome to Christianity. This is historic Christianity. It has always been this way. We wear Jesus as our badge. Who are we? We're believers. We are Christians. We are children of the Most High God. And that's what we wear on our sleeve. And that's what sets us free as well. That is the truth that wins. The accusation of repression which, by the way, I've received this accusation before. When someone denies their proclivity, aren't they miserable? So this is a slightly different argument, but it's the same one. It sort of hangs out near, which is, Eric, are you saying that people are not supposed to function in their proclivity? It's like, what a funny question to ask me. Do you not know me? Of course, I'm not going to foster proclivities. Anything that is going to feed the flesh is the opposite direction of the way a Christian moves. 
So yes, you could say it that way. I am not going to ever encourage any of you to feed your proclivities towards fleshly lusts. No. However, the argument comes towards an Eric Ludi that I am bringing repression then because this is just who these people are. This is how they were made. This is how their, their DNA wired them. We are all wired by our DNA to be sinners. I'm not going to argue that. However, every single one of us has been given a Savior in Jesus Christ. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, we put off the first condition with whatever proclivity package we received. It no longer rules us. We are ruled by Jesus Christ. So is that repression? Am I actually stealing your potential in your life? Am I robbing from your happiness measures that you could have in life by being this cranky preacher that is giving this you know, narrow way teaching? It's a good question. Because the guy talking to you is the happiest man on earth. So what happened with me? You, you could probably say you had some boring proclivities. It probably was no big deal for you to give up yours. There was a lot of satisfaction in my proclivities. I am very, very happy to not be fostering them. However, they were probably just as engaging as yours. A proclivity is a proclivity. And it's hard for us as humans to measure happiness levels in pre-Christ uh, existence and to be able to swap stories and say, my, my happiness was better than yours. All we know is that it gives solace and pleasure for a season, but it ultimately is going to corrupt and kill. Jesus Christ sets us free, but he doesn't set us free under the doldrums. He doesn't set us free under misery. He sets us free unto freedom and liberty in Christ. Matthew 16, 25, and you can see also four other uh, repetitions of this by Jesus. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. So you try and hold on to your proclivities, your sense of fulfillment, because that word for life is seat of fulfillment. Isn't that a great word for this? This seat over here? It's like, this is mine, but this is who I am. This is what I must have. God, you can't take this from me. This is what I'm wired for. This is my DNA. I was born this way. Sure, you were. However, you're in Adam, and your destiny is death. You have been given a Savior to be set free from that. For whosoever will save his life or try and hold on to his sense of fulfillment in Adam is going to lose his life. But whosoever will lose his life or be willing to give up this seat of fulfillment and trust God is actually going to find life. They're going to find fulfillment. Isn't that interesting? They get something better and it's like capital F, fulfillment. And if you're a believer, you understand what I mean by that. There's a lot of heaviness and hardship in the church. When legalism rules in the church, I totally understand why some people could say it's miserable. You, you give up your proclivities and you come under the weight of law. Oh, that is, that is total misery. We don't come under the weight of law. We come under the Spirit of God. And that does not mean there aren't moments when we still have an allure back to Egypt, a desire to go back and taste leeks and onions, which both sound disgusting to me in the first place. However, there is that pull back. But the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, is superior to the life of enslavement in Egypt. And that is precisely the parallel that we have. Am I doing a disservice any more than Moses is doing a disservice to the Israelites when he was calling them out of their slavery? And then they ended up in the wilderness for a season. They're like, this stinks. It's like, well, you weren't intended to stay here. <laughs> this is a transitionary place. You were meant to enter into something greater. Many of us as believers get stuck in the wilderness and wonder, yeah, this is repression. I would rather be back in Egypt. Suke is the word for life there. Breath of life, the soul, the center of feeling and longing, the seed of fulfillment. If you're willing to give that up, you're going to find capital F, fulfillment. Of course, one of my favorite scriptures is what I'm finishing with. Psalm 1611. You guys remember that where we're seated is in heavenly places in Christ. 
You see, when we believe in Christ, we actually no longer share in Adam's work, but we share in Christ's work. What was his work? Crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and seat. He is seated in heavenly places, and we are in him. So therefore, when you read Psalm 1611, it actually gives a whole new meaning to it. You will show me the path of life. That's what Jesus is doing. You want to find life? Give it up. Give up your suke. Give up your collection over here. Give up your proclivities. Give up that which you think gives you life and satisfaction. Would you hand that to me? But God, if I give that up, I don't know that I'll ever find life and satisfaction. I will show you true life. But it's found when you let go of this life. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where is he taking us? Into his presence and at his right hand. That's where Jesus sits. And we're in Christ. That's where pleasures forevermore are. What you have been invited into isn't a downturn, isn't a lower quality existence. It is the highest quality existence. It's the way you were designed and created. It's fulfillment to your design and purpose. And if anyone knows what you were created for, it's God. But you have to trust him. And you need to stop allowing this to define you. Stop looking in the mirror. Start looking at Christ and let his word define who you are from this day forward. Father, this is a truth that must be repeated often and always in our life. And I pray that we would heed it today afresh and that we would rem remember it and we would believe it and that we would take action steps forward in putting off old and taking on the new that we would not allow the deceitfulness of lusts to steer us, to connive in our life at any degree, but that the truth of the Spirit of God, the truth of the Word of God, would actually lead and guide and direct our steps. We love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.